we today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam. We have adopted a plan for the complete withdrawal of all U.S. combat ground forces. We are finally bringing American men home. The American troops were gone, and as a result, the House of Cards began to collapse. We were dealing with an ambassador who was just convinced that somehow there wouldn't have to be an evacuation and therefore there wouldn't have to be a concern about evacuating South Vietnamese. These people were dead men walking. Sometimes there's an issue not of legal and illegal, but right or wrong. I borrowed a truck and I drove them to the airbase. I had told them, when you hear three thumps, that means hold the baby's mouths, don't breathe, don't talk, don't make any noise. I was going to get them out. The final battle of Saigon has begun. That morning, there must have been at least 10,000 people ringing the embassy. There was a sea of people wanting to get out. They looked up at the helicopters leaving, and I could see their eyes. That's good eyes. There are no words to describe what a ship looks like. It holds 200, and it's got 2,000 on it. We have no more helicopters. That's it. As it took off, I could see the group right where we had left them. It was just so serious and deep a betrayal. Who goes? And who gets left behind? Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 32.1, Film, Literature, and Kinnaman. with my friend Dave Kenneman over Zoom. We talk carpentry, history, and literature. Things got pretty wild when I dove in deep discussing two famous documentaries, Ken Burns' Vietnam and The Last Days of Vietnam on PBS. Both of these documentaries were outstanding efforts to understand and convey the toxic American experience in Asia. Unfortunately, most of this conversation was lost in the ether, which we now recognize as a part of the Zoom experience. Also, unfortunately, Dave and I digressed greatly in the making of this episode. In our conversation, we discovered so many topics that were, well, off-topic that I had to cut them out. In this episode, we discussed the glory of HBO Max, Peter Jackson, and how literature finds itself on film. Enjoy. Let me finish my thought, and then I, then I, I got to ask you how you're doing. Okay. 
I think there was this, this, you know, the trauma of everything that had happened in the 70s and the 80s. People just kind of forgot that there was this diplomatic thing that we had agreed to that was broken. I think there was a lot of lot of this going on. Dylan points his fingers as if trying to find someone to blame. Mm-hmm. I think you can see that in Hollywood and people just kind of they, you know, they remember the history that they want to remember. And I think it's only it's only been mm-hmm. since Afghanistan and, and our invasion in Iraq in which people just kind of look back and they're they're reassessing as you know when you get enough space. Yeah. There's a reassessment of of the history. And uh, the Treaty of Paris, particularly with a lot of people writing new histories of the war, and the Treaty of Paris, is, which is barely mentioned in earlier histories of the war, is really well mentioned in later histories of the war. People just kind of rediscover uh, what actually happened and how the war actually ended. You know, they talk about the drawdowns, but they don't really discuss why. Why were there drawdowns? Well, it was because, you know, the Madman and Kissinger were just laying on the bombs like no tomorrow. And they they made it very clear to Hanoi, uh, like, look, we're going to we're going to continue to bomb your civilians unless you sign this treaty. You know, you can. There's a lot of reasons to be upset at that. You know, I'm not saying that that's right, but that's what happened, and that's what drove the Vietnamese to the bargaining table, and that's what got us out of that war. You know, not not airlifts in 1975. That didn't get us out of the war. The NVA didn't push us out of South Vietnam. We. You know, we took our 1.8 million troops and left, you know, mm-hmm. anyway. I think, okay, I just put, I, you said some very telling things here that it takes a fresher approach. And in, uh, in, in that state, statement, Shamir, it's a new generation and a new generation of historians, of novelists, of documentarians who've got a fresher perspective than the people who lived either there in the war or lived while the war was going on and saw the end. And it, I mean, it's, it's yes, and Hollywood has a role in that. Popular literature has a role in that. Memoirs. But I think, I mean, really what you said is that it's, we're talking, I'm talking 40, 50, 60 years down the road. People look at the Paris Treaty, look at the finer points of that and go, Yes, and those were largely ignored because, as you said, people only look at what they want to look at. They hear what they want to hear. And it takes future historians and novelists, because there's some novelists who tell a very good history picture, even though it's historical fiction. It helps us understand better because those characters become emotionally, intellectually appealing. We understand it better. Even though there was no Tom Joad, such as the Grapes of Wrath, he was just a symbol as an example. Okay, I'm thinking of Stanley Cornell's A Bright Shiny Lie. Excellent book. Just an interjection here in case you are looking up books on your phone. Dave made a boo-boo. He mixed the author Stanley Carnell with the book A Bright and Shining Lie by Neil Sheehan. Krakow wrote Vietnam a history. Both books are required reading on that conflict and where everything went wrong. We'll join our regularly scheduled program after these messages. I really, that's something I'm going to reread. I tell myself someday, I finished reading Guns, Germs, and Steel by uh, Jared Diamond. And I understand his perspective better. And I understand his argument, which I think is a lot of validity, is that geography plays an important role for societies to either flourish or die. And in that flourish, you have to have, you know, I'm not trying to change it, but they have to have these different 
you have to be able to assimilate what other cultures, other societies are doing, and you grow from that and perhaps subjugate that one that you learn to assimilate, or you will be subjugated and eventually taken out. So you have to, that's what the Romans did, what the Greeks did, what the Persians did. And now you have what Washington, D.C., you have Beijing, you have Moscow, all competing with the interests going on here. And I think we're seeing a mini version right now taking place between Russia and Ukraine, a.k.a. the West or Washington. And China is sitting on the sideline thinking, who do we go along with? Or do we let these two fight it out and we become the new empire of the world? Every day longer that that war lasts, China gets stronger. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's it's costing us dollars, capital, human capital, uh, physical capital. Uh, China's just sitting, yeah, they're, they're producing left and right. But that doesn't, even though they get stronger, the thing is that they can misuse that strength, not use that strength, or... They made the wrong bets. They make the wrong hedge. I mean, it's it's just because you gain in strength on paper and physical materials and members doesn't mean that you pick the right horse. You, that doesn't mean that I'm trying to think of my analogy here is that you bet on the right team. There's no guarantee. There could be a Waterloo moment for them. I mean, it's the thing is we've had some Waterloo moments, if you want to call it that, but we've never been subjugated. If we do, it's going to be eternal. Goodbye, my soldiers! Goodbye, my sons! Goodbye! My children! You really are the best of my generals. nothing to offer me but these Amazons. Thank God that man does war on us.
of what remains of us here. Here! Tell them that we won the war! We won the war! Will you agree to surrender? Mad! Watching Chernobyl and HBO Max Barb the entire afternoon here. Well, the good we did. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that to them, justice was done. See, a just world is a sane world. There was nothing sane about Chernobyl. I'm pleased to report that the situation in Chernobyl is stable. In terms of radiation, I'm told it's the equivalent of a chest X-ray. No, Chernobyl is on fire. And every atom of uranium is like a bullet, penetrating everything in its path. Metal, concrete, flesh. Now Chernobyl holds over three trillion of these bullets. Some of them will not stop firing for 50,000 years. Tell me how to put it out. You are dealing with something that has never occurred on this planet before. The phone lines contain the spread of misinformation. What will happen to our boys? The pain is unimaginable. In three days to three weeks, you're dead. You can see him and you cannot touch him. Do you understand? What happened on the night of the accident? Asking the right question will get you the truth. There is no truth. What happened then? What happened after? All of it. All of it. Madness. That's a good show. It is. I've seen it before. I talked her into watching it today, and it's excellent. And we're going to finish it tonight. Yeah, Jared Harris and uh, uh, God, still in Skarsgård. Yes. Yeah, still in. Uh, did you watch Andor with Stellan? Yeah. Yeah. What'd you think of it? Uh, I didn't like him in that role. Wow. Um, but I I loved Andor. I loved the whole show. 
steal from the Empire? You just walk in like you belong. They're so proud of themselves. So fat and satisfied. They can't imagine that someone like me would ever get inside their house. Cassian Adler. The Empire is choking us so slowly. We're starting not to notice. What I'm asking is this. Wouldn't you rather give it all to something real? I need all the heroes I can get. For the greater good. Call it what you will. Let's call it war. There's fermenting out there, son. Pockets of fermenting. You're in my net. Are you a fish? Or are you a thief? You're slipping. <laughs> I'm not slipping. I've just been hiding for too long. As long as everyone thinks I'm an irritation, there's a good chance they'll miss what I'm really doing. What are you really doing? This is what revolution looks like. I'm tired of losing. I loved how they uh, they brought in people at the right time, like and- Andy Circus showing up, you know, in the in the prison at yeah, the end. Yeah. And I just thought the whole yes. the whole thing was I'm a Star Wars nut, as you know. Uh-huh. And, and I really I really think that they, with the exception of Rogue One, um, the regime at Disney, including Kathleen Kennedy has completely mishandled the entire handoff from Lucasfilm. Okay. And I've been very disappointed in, in their, in their products. And, um, even the ones that turn out really well, like, uh, the Mandalorian and, uh, Boba Fett, like as good as they are, it's, it's 13 episodes or something. It's 13 hours. And really every episode could be 30 minutes. Okay. You know, it's just so drawn out and it doesn't need to be. And Andor was a little bit little bit better. There was probably about 15 minutes of fat on each episode, I think. You know. <laughs> I understand that the season 2 of The Mandalorian is really really fat. It's good. It's it's a western. It's a Saturday matinee. And We've got, we've watched it, third season, we've got two episodes left, obviously. We like to enjoy it. We know the good guys are going to win. We know they have to tell the story, backstory and stuff, so we take it at face value. We've got our popcorn with us. We're sitting in the bleacher seats and we're cheering on the Mandalorian in a couple. <laughs> so, you know, no, no heavy. <laughs> Andor, I liked. I liked a lot. I like the storytelling because it's more of a movie. It is adult. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, 
a lot of people were coming up to me in person, either liked it or didn't like it. And I hadn't seen it yet. So they kept egging me on. Even the ones who didn't like it were still watching it, which I thought was kind of weird as if something was going to change them or so. Uh, so I watched the series. I liked the series. Uh, I enjoyed it. Now, is it great? I can't say that, but would I watch it again? Yes, and, and I'm trying to twist Barb's into watching it. I watched it again with her to get see her reaction because I think, if anything, it's some good storytelling. It gets bogged down in places, yes, particularly when he is with the rebel group and they're planning to go to the, the, the heist. It gets a little drawn out for me, but I'm figuring, okay, they're just moving something along here to get him going so he becomes more than just a thief. He becomes a revolutionary. I did like it at the one scene where there's just a handful of them left. They're recuperating from the heist, and he's talking with the guy who's saying, hey, let's go do this. And he pulls out his pistol, boom, shoots the guy. Yes, Greedo. As a matter of fact, I was just going to see your boss. Tell Java that I've got his money. Yeah, but this time I've got the money. I don't have it with me. Tell Java. Even I get boarded sometimes. Do you think I had a choice? Over my dead body. Sorry about the mess. You know, if if Darth Vader is the guy tracking you down, I mean, are you going to be I mean, you're a ragtag group of rebels who can barely fix your own speeders. And you're hiding across the galaxy. Are you are you really going to allow the group around you to expose you? You know, you're being chased by... And that was the best thing I liked about Andor, is that it was essentially the Gestapo of the Empire, who were dressed in white who are running around really just squeezing and crushing. And that's exactly how a secret state police works. Mm -hmm. And particularly like all of the inner turmoil that happens inside that intelligence service is, is exactly what happens inside intelligence services in a totalitarian state. And if you look at um, the guy who inherited the, well, Goering inherited the Gestapo, not inherited, he created the Gestapo, and then he handed it off to uh, to Rudolf Diels um, in, a, in a power exchange. And then Diels was unceremoniously kicked out, who wound up in a concentration camp and was murdered, effectively by Himmler. Himmler takes it over. And then the SS gets so big, Himmler gives it to Heydrich. And then Heydrich is assassinated, and it's taken over by, you know, this fourth guy, and there's, it's that type of turnover that you have in those states. And you see that in Andor. You see the, all of the, 
the people around that table just like just turn on each other like a bunch of snipes, you know, and that's how they work. It's not it's not like a professional Western Democratic run intelligence service. I mean, look at what happened in the CIA uh, in the early 2000s when uh, that Michael Hansen guy, uh, they finally caught him after 15 years of selling secrets to the Russians, you know, and it was it was the bureaucratic ineptitude or the, the Aldrich Ames case, you know, these are very high profile people and you would never have that in a, uh, in a situation like the empire. I know that they have a man on the inside, but how much of an inside man he is, it was revealed, I think in the last episode, you know, we'll find out, I guess, season two, you know, yeah. he doesn't seem like a power broker to me. He just seems like an informant, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. So I, I thought I loved I loved all of that. I thought it was very appropriate. Hey, I didn't think it made make a connection with Gustavo. That's excellent. But I with uh, Skarsgård's character, he finally got a platform at the end of the that episode, the last one, to say why he's doing this. And I mean, that was the bravura of the revolt right there. Where when Andor was with that ragtag group, he met the young guy who was writing the manifesto. And remember, he had that was reading that. And that was slowly changing him, which I thought, okay, is this uh, Das Kapital, my comp? You know, is this the, the book that's going to change? You know, they're, they're borrowing from that that analogy. But I think, is it Gilroy, Tony Gilroy, who's directing, who's overseeing Andor? Yeah. Okay. That's right. He's He's got that movie tech. He, he He's brought something in that isn't all sugar-coated, and it doesn't have these cute little animals or furry creatures running around. That's typical of Star Wars. Or the comic relief, whatever you're going to call it. Or it's the primitive uh, defeats the industrial society. Or, or you know, these big motifs, I'm trying to say, is that I like it because it is dark. I like it in the similar vein that, I don't know if you're a Perry Mason fan. Not the original, but... Currently, what's on now? I'm watching season two. I watched the first season of HBO Max. Mr. Mason, certain matters require discretion and finesse. That's the kind of thing you're good at. Wear your good suit. This is my good suit. You're a detective, Mr. Mason. It's a fancy word for a busybody, but yes. It's very easy for you to break the rules, isn't it? And you never accept any help. I'm not I have a look. You stay in the truck. Shut up. How can we help you, Mr. Baggerly? Members of my church. An unspeakable act has visited upon them. Kidnapping gone way wrong. Worst thing you ever seen. What do you know what I've seen? We do what we don't like when there's a greater good to be served. You more than anyone should know that. The devil put Charlie Dodson in this box. Mr. Mason, it's hard to believe that you're the right person for the job. I'm the only person for this job. All they've got is innuendo and circumstance. We have to go after him! Why are you digging so hard? It's the way I play the game. You want to know things, Mr. Mason. You want to prove things. What comfort has that ever given you?
will gather evidence against the devil. You're saying the police are involved? The cops, the church, everybody. Blessed be the man who will snap this devil's neck! Just about out of moves. You said just about out of moves. And the storytelling of that. <laughs> I recommend it. I, yeah, I need to see that. It looks like a film noir kind of. It is. It looks it looks shot that way, and I'm very interested in seeing that. Okay, not tip, not black and white. It's colored. It's uh, right, right. But it looks like a hard boiled, you know, Perry Mason. Yes. Very dramatic, you know, with lots of twists and turns. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Mildred Pierce with Joan Crawford. Rings a bell. That's based on a... 1945. Based on a book yeah. by Dashiell Hammett. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think I've yeah. read the book years ago. Yeah. Hammett's, he's a good writer. He's, I like that. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think of when I when I think of Mildred... Mm-hmm. When I see the, the ads for Perry and Mason, it makes me think about Mildred Pierce. Okay. Watch the first couple of episodes. I don't think it'd be a waste of time in your life if you don't like it because it's, the acting in it is fantastic. And it is Twist Turds, Who Done It, and such with that. Uh, I'm trying to get Barb to watch it. She's under risk. Okay, but I got her to Chern- Chernobyl. And I told her, you know, even if this wasn't true, it's still a spooky story. It's still scary. Because particularly when you see the radiation effects of people, what happens to them? I mean, they're, they are full-blown the acting in that app in that show wow. is really superb yes and of course we should we should point out that while we to close out the star wars conversation <laughs> uh daisy ridley just announced that she's been signed on by lucasfilm to do three more star wars movies oh wow okay just announced i think uh yesterday okay right yeah and it will take place 15 years after Rise of Skywalker. All right. So we're post-war, post-First Order, and the Jedi are in disarray. And there's lots of discussion around who are the Jedi, what are they doing, what is the state of the galaxy. And she's attempting to rebuild the Jedi Order based on the books that she took at the end of the last film. Mm -hmm. Based on what she promised Luke. So that's where we're going. That's what she says. So we'll we'll see. It sounds like she's going to start a new Jedi Academy in the, in the first movie. <laughs> good, good. So they're going to build up, probably have a this arc of three films that they're going to bring together. So we're probably thinking another what time frame? Okay, episode 10? Yeah. 10, 11, 12? Yeah. And in real time, maybe five, six years, seven years of... That we, for the first, the, the third one, maybe, or something. I'm, I'm just pulling figures out of the air. I wrote film review of The Last Jedi when it came out. Um, you can go to my website and read it if you want. It's rather lengthy. And not that there weren't elements in The Last Jedi that I didn't like, because I certainly did. But it was a very controversial movie because it was made by an auteur, Ryan Johnson, mm-hmm. who seemed to just gloriously mishandle a whole lot of things that happened in that film. And everyone was so extremely upset because they thought finally they got, you know, 
it was going to work. It was going to happen and it didn't happen. And uh, so I just sort of went through a history of all of the evils committed against the Star Wars fans and starting with the Phantom Menace and then sort of broke down why the fans were so upset. And The Last Jedi was kind of like a culmination of the fandom just just losing their shit over things not being <laughs> what they wanted, you know, yeah. including the entire plot of The Force Awakens. So it wasn't necessarily that The Force Awakens was a bad movie, but it was the plot of The Force Awakens that was was really just so strange to everyone. <laughs> Much like uh, The Rise of Skywalker, where everyone, particularly in The Last Jedi, thought that, you know, surely Luke is going to be in the Yoda role or the Ben role, and then we're going to train the young Daisy Ridley. Well, that's not going to happen. That just threw everybody for a loop. Like, what am I, what am I watching? And then the superfluous characters and people yep. that don't need to be there. And then, of course, in the in the in uh, the, the Last Jedi, there's an entire 25 minute plot that doesn't need to be included. It's just very in the middle of a chase movie it's a chase movie is what it is the empire is chasing the rebels mm -hmm. you're static for most of that timeline you know it's just very very odd way to to structure a film and to execute it you know mm -hmm. yeah that's, anyway that's no it's that's good okay back to books okay yeah all right what are you reading what are you learning hearing about right now in your mm -hmm. world Anything. Okay, so I just finished Hellhound on his trail, mm -hmm. which I think I, I texted you about last week, yes. which was about James Earl Ray. And let me tell you something. I would love to see a documentary, of course, maybe a two-hour documentary. I would love to see a six-part miniseries on the life of James Earl Ray. Okay. That guy was so effed up. It's unbelievable. Sometimes I think, wow, the FBI really did their diligent duty tracking him down and arresting him or extraditing him from England. And then at other times I'm thinking, I cannot believe the guy got as far as he did. He he just seemed incapable of making the correct decisions throughout his entire life, much less in the, in the 54 days after he murdered Dr. King. Okay. Including my favorite one at all, one of all is after he's arrested in the customs room in England, trying to go to Brussels, he is placed uh, at a table. He, he is given a lawyer and he's talking with his lawyer and he's denying that he is James L. Ray. He's saying that the FBI has the wrong man, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. His English lawyer, his barrister, right, is is talking to this man with an Alabama accent, or he doesn't know it's an Alabama accent, but it's a deep South accent. And this guy is saying that he's from uh, Southern Ontario. That makes no sense <laughs> at all. And then the second thing is that his, his barrister asks him, do you want me to contact any of your relatives in Canada? And James Earl Ray says, yeah, I got a brother, Jerry living in, uh, in Chicago, if you could give him a call, the solicitor is writing down the information. Jerry, he's yeah, Jerry Ray, he's my brother. What I mean, 
number one on the list of don't blow your cover identity is don't admit to having a brother that you really have, yeah. you know, he might as well have just forked over his real passport at that point, which was another thing. The re- entire the entire reason that the altercation happened, what tipped off the customs officer that there was something wrong, was he saw his second second Canadian passport. You know, in his stuff, he was like, "What's that passport? Oh, this is the one that I had amended. It had a, a typo on it, so I had it changed in Lisbon when I was staying in Lisbon." And there was the there was the Scotland Yard cop who was behind him who looked over and saw the customs officer handling two passports. And he said, Oh, that's weird. So he went over to the booth and he saw the two passports with the two names. He's like that name, that's strange. And of course, this is the olden days of police work where they give everyone a list at the beginning of the day. This is your watch list. If you see anybody come in and out on on this Interpol list, uh, flag and put them in a room. And the name he was using on the passport was on that list. Thanks to the Canadians who went through something like 27,000 passport renewals Mm -hmm. that were covered like a six-month period, right? The Canadian, the RCMP went through every single one, and they had one that was a maybe. And that maybe wound up being James Earl Ray. Wow. Good story. It was completely – and why why the FBI contacted uh, the RCMP and said, we think that he's in Canada is because uh, when James Earl Ray was – was in the pornography business. He'd made a business trip to Toronto. That was their only lead. That was the only reason why they called the RCMP. And the RCMP didn't have to do anything about it. They could have just sat on their hands. But they chose instead to go through 27,000 passport applications. It's this step-by-step process of the FBI really, really doing something they didn't have to do, which is to call the RCMP. The RCMP doing something they didn't have to do, which is to go through 27,000 passports. And then the Brits doing something they didn't have to do, which is to flag down somebody that had two Canadian passports and see if they're on the wanted list. You know, it it was textbook police work, and it was certainly the extra mile. But if Ray hadn't been such a fool, you know, he never would have been caught. And by the way, do you know where he was going? He was trying to go? No. He was on his way to Brussels. He was trying to catch a steamship that would take him to Rhodesia which was still a country in 1968. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to join a white supremacist militia Mm. that was hopefully going to be exterminating ethnic groups in Rhodesia. That was his plan. That's why he wanted to go there. And he couldn't go through South Africa because there was a, there was a boycott. Mm -hmm. Very, it was a very interesting book, Hellhound on his trail. Now the one I'm reading now is Peter Jackson, a filmmaker's journey. Oh, yeah. And I'm only about a hundred pages into it. And this, this is pretty, pretty fascinating. I thought it was going to be pretty dry reading, but it does remind you of how the rest of the world, even the developing world 40 years ago, basically had nothing. You know, Peter Jackson living in, the bedroom that his parents gave him from birth until the age of 26, even though he had a full-time job, even though he had all these other things in his life because the economy just did not allow a whole lot of monetary movement in New Zealand in the 1970s and 1980s, you know, where he couldn't afford a camera. And when he could, it was a super eight 
mm. which is partly where I get the name of my podcast, the Super 70 Podcast. Super comes from Super 8, which is the low end of the filmmaking scale. And then 70 millimeter, which is the high end mm -hmm. of the filmmaking scale. So that was the whole idea. And anyway, you know, it mentions him taking trips to Hollywood and being enraptured in the filmmaking process and buying a camera, his first 16 millimeter camera in New Zealand. And it cost him an arm and a leg. So he went to his parents to get the money. The economics of owning a 16 millimeter camera were very ominous. The nuts and bolts of it would just fascinate you. Like a Super 8 cost, I don't know, it was like three minutes of film and it cost you 10 bucks. And it costs you 10 bucks to develop it. So for 20 bucks, uh, you could shoot three minutes of film. And then you could cut that and edit it together and you could put it on a projector and show it in your home. But 16 millimeter doesn't work that way. The 16 millimeter is a larger format. Three minutes on 16 millimeters is like 100 bucks. And to process it is a hundred bucks. So for two hundred bucks, you get the same screen time, which is three minutes. That's expensive. It's exponentially expensive. And one of the reasons why it's so expensive. By the way, when you get the negative, you cannot play that negative in your household because it's an interpositive negative, not a negative to show light through that gives you the positive on the screen. Right. So you have to strike a negative from the interpositive after you've already developed it before you even edit it. So then once you edit it, then you've got to strike a copy, another negative mm -hmm. all the way through to show something in your home. It's so your $200 is now $400 for the same amount of time. So it went from, Hey, let's do this over the weekend to Holy shit. Like I need a second job to pay for my filmmaking habit. It was literally like, let's get a van, go out in the middle of the desert and, and start making meth so I can make movies. Mm -hmm. It was, it was really like that. Breaking bad. I was impressed with his, his devotion. And of course the number of people who he was roommates with or who worked with him at the newspaper when he was uh, doing mimeographs and litho uh, lithologies at the newspaper or the, the ethno scratches that they do for plates to make photos in, in newspapers. Uh, everyone that he met in pubs just saying, oh, yeah, I'll come over Saturday and help you for eight hours. You know, just everybody chipped in for free. And if it wasn't without that manpower, much like when Steven Spielberg was in high school and doing the same thing, you know, the manpower situation was pretty, pretty amazing. Just everybody just chipping in. So that's what I'm reading there. Okay. What are you reading? Uh, reading a novel. It's a novel where it deals with a forger, a gentleman who owns the painting that was stolen, and then the actual painter, a female, who there really was a person in the Dutch Guild for painters, and about her life. So you have these characters that are uh, not, they'll, they'll never meet other than the ones of the modern age. And it's part whodunit detective, uh, but it's also, it talks about paintings and also, the moral issues of copying paint, copying painters and then selling or keeping them, even though you know they're fakes or so. So there's a lot of moral ambiguity going on here. It was a book that one of my uh, lady friends who I work for said, hey, Dave, I want you to read this. I think you like it. I liked it. Would you please do this as a favor? Said, yeah, I'll do it. I'm reading it. I'm enjoying it. It's, in fact, it's very well written, hard to put down. It's a new writer for me. And it's 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 good. I I you know, like it's a change of pace after reading Diamond and 
jumped into this and then so I'm looking for something new, which comes back to me asking you these two questions. Why did you first or second pick Hellhound? What was your interest for that? Then also for the Jackson book. Why did you pick the Jackson book? Well, the Hellhound on his trail, I have a close friend of mine I went to high school with, lifelong liberal Democrat, was my best friend. For I mean, for life, he was best man at my wedding. Okay. And me being this, you know, arch conservative Republican, <laughs> I, I can't explain that to you. It's it's just what worked. He said, I read this book and and you've got to read it. And he he rarely reads book, actually. He's not like a big reader. Because of his endorsement, I did read it. Now, I also have to say that about five years ago, my son and I took a trip to Memphis. Mm-hmm. We drove up on like a Friday and then or on a Saturday rather. And then on that, uh, that Sunday, we went to Graceland opened at 10. So we did Graceland. Then we did Sun Studios and we had to do something else for the rest of the day. So I asked him, can we go by the civil rights, the American civil rights museum? It's the national civil rights museum in Memphis, which is at the Lorraine motel where Dr. King died. And he said, yeah, sure. Let's do that. And, uh, I tell you what, Dave. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, if you ever get a chance, you need to go. It is a it is a very moving experience, and it's not just about Dr. King. It is the you know decades long struggle through Jim Crow. And um, there's there's a lunch counter there that you can sit at, you know, the, to bring the the power to the fore. It was very emotional. It was way more emotional than I I thought you know, for a white guy in his mid forties, like what, how can I, how can I relate to what these people are really going through? And I think the museum really, really succeeds in that conveying that information, but even more important than that. And this gets back to hellhound on his trail across the street from the rain motel is the boarding house where James L. Ray rented the room. So he could shoot Dr. King out of the back window mm-hmm. That is also now a museum. It's a separate museum. It's run by the same people who run the Civil Rights Museum, but they didn't want that building or the story in that building to pollute the Civil Rights Museum, which I thought was an awesome decision. I really agree with it. So I went over there with Luke, and Luke found that even more fascinating. Not only does it show you, it's kind of like the Sixth Floor Museum. Mm-hmm where you're standing in the window at the spot and you can kind of bring it all into its totality. But there was a huge exhibit in there about COINTELPRO. I had heard about COINTELPRO and I'd seen these documentaries on the History Channel 20 years ago about the church commission in the 70s and how all of this sort of just came out and they declassified all these materials. But I didn't know this shit. This shit was amazing. This shit was There was a legitimate effort on behalf of the FBI to find the murderer of Dr. King and bring him to justice. There were people in the FBI who cared deeply about this. And, of course, Johnson's got his fist on Hoover like, damn it, man, you do something. You do something now. You find these people. And Hoover, like, really not giving a shit. Hoover just like, "Um, yeah, find them. This not very hands-off approach, right? But the people in the field offices who were in charge of the investigation were very invested and just thought we can't have people just running around shooting our national leaders like this. This really concerned them like it's 
it's Dr. King now, but you know, it could be George Wallace tomorrow. And it was Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. That was the concern was this political violence is going to spread and it's going to get out of control, which is what I'm very fearful of happening in this country in the next five years. Yes. Right. Yes. It's very, very real. Yes. So, so they're, they're going through all of this and they're going through the hotel. And of course they find bugs in the hotel. And so then they're, you know, they're sweeping uh, Dr. King's house with Coretta Scott King. Then they find bugs in his house. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're actually asking Coretta Scott King, you're, why is your house bugged? Like, this doesn't make sense. Well, what do you think her fucking reaction was? <laughs> you guys are the ones who are doing it. Yeah. Yeah, they were. And they're appalled. These agents are appalled. They're like, wait a second. You need a warrant to do this type of shit. So they they trace the manufacturer of the bugs and they go to the manufacturer and they say, who did you sell these to? Well, big fucking surprise. <laughs> Sold them to the FBI in Quantico, Virginia. Yeah. And that that's when someone comes down from the Hoover building and says, guys, you need to focus on your investigation and you need to forget about all this other stuff that you're finding. You don't mention this. And it was a secret for like a, what, until the church commission met in 77. So almost 10 years, you know, nobody knew about it. So all of that was broken down, bullet pointed, explained through. And it was, I, I just found that fascinating. And yeah, it, it, it shook my trust in the government just a little bit. But uh, I think that I can say with a lot of certainty and a lot of feeling and a lot of heart and a lot of honesty that I believe way more in the FBI now than where it was 40 years ago. Yeah. And I know that there, there are some people in this country that have an inverse feeling. Yes. And it could be that they have that inverse feeling because they don't think that the FBI is doing what it used to do 40 years ago. Right. It was a tool of reactionaries and it is no longer that tool It is now a tool largely, even though it keeps making mistakes for justice. And it it, it has made extremely high profile fuck ups, particularly in the 90s with the Ruby Ridge situation. And Janet Reno wound up being probably the worst boss of that department a very long time. And the Richard Jewell, you know, cluster fuck that that was and Waco and all the whole, you know, it's not good points, but. In general, I think the FBI has been a positive force the past couple of decades, since 9-11. I think it still yeah. is, but it gets brushed broadly by some Republicans who are in the Senate and the House as a way to defang the FBI because it's a democratic or a liberal institution. And it's a way for them. Which is shocking to me that they think that. And it's not. It really, it really, it really is. So it's a police force to enforce the law, uh, carried out. But and and it is a domestic intelligence service. Yes. And I mean, you have to you have to say that it is. Yeah. It was founded with that intent. But who are they investigating? Are they investigating liberal Democrats? Well, they used to, because extreme liberal Democrats in the '60s and '70s they were deemed as a threat to the country. Yeah. Right. Yes. They thought Dr. King was a communist. Yes. Hoover's personally thought that. And of course, that's not true. There was no evidence of it. He never said anything that crazy. That's that's a complete lie and fabrication. But that's what they were using that tool for. 
And then now who is the threat to the country? The reactionaries. Yeah. Yeah. They're the threat to the country. And that is who's being investigated. Yes. So, that, of course, the, the far right doesn't want the FBI to investigate reactionaries. You know, so the COINTELPRO is very much the same. Anyway, so that's why I got into Hellhound on this trail. Peter Jackson thing, yes. I've, got a, I've got a podcast coming up. I'm going to do a Peter Jackson film with a friend of mine. And I read the book so I could prep for that. Oh, homework. Okay. So it, it, your book. Okay. My book. My book was a put in my hand. I want you to read this. I have an emotional attachment to it. I want to see if you like it or not. And I'm, when I finish it, which is probably be later tonight or tomorrow morning, I will contact her and say, honestly, I enjoyed your book because it was a good writing and two good storytelling. Even though I've seen this type of story before and, but with a different genre with a different idea behind it so yes and i also learned a little bit about painting and about forgeries so that i found that interesting what's the name of the book again dominic smith is the author the last painting of sarah devos yes by dominic smith yes one of my customers who's i mentioned mentioned that her parents were holocaust survivors she's a reader she's retired and she put the book in my hand, said, I want you to read this. And I read it, told her I really liked it. And I forgot I was going to return it to her because I went back to work on her door. And she said she's going to be reading more of him, too. So we talked about the book. And here I am having this discussion about forgeries and what if you know it's a forgery, why would you do it? If you bought a forgery, what would you do with it? Do you feel like you're a victim of a crime when you have bought a forged painting? I mean, are you really? It depends on how you frame the question. And if you are such a decent, I mean, say you are top of the class for, forger, is it because of the money or is it because of the challenge that you can hoodwink people? And yes, you're breaking a moral law in the absolute. But what's the challenge? I mean, is, I mean, could you step on the other side of that line and be a straight person and not commit or break that moral absolute. I want you to talk about women. Oh, I enjoy women. A woman could trust me, as long as her interest didn't run too contrary to my own. This painting is worth a hundred million bucks. Shut off the air to drive out the tourists. Then they close the gates to keep everybody out. Diversion. Make a lot of noise over there. So over here in this room, you can take a hundred million off the wall and waltz right out the front door. Oh, that's good. Oh, yes. Do we know each other? Not yet. I'm Catherine Banning. And whose head are you after? Yours. You're enjoying something. A worthy adversary. An entertainment. Do you really think I'm going to sleep with the man I'm investigating? Hmm? <laughs> Almost got your man? Mm-hmm. Think you'll get me? Oh, I hope so. Oh, this must go over. With whom? Whomever you bring here. Uh, I never bring anyone here. Well, you got your man caught in cookie jar now. How are you going to get out of it? You don't believe it's possible that you could ever trust me, do you? You're transferring assets, getting ready to run. I suppose I did run. Then what would you have? Not the painting, $5 million fee, and not me. Do you want to dance? Or do you want to dance? I want you to do your job.
job. Because right now, you're acting like a junkie. This is about money. It's not about the money. We like the chase. I can live here tomorrow. So can you. Honey! How can I possibly trust you? I'm going to trust you. Is it that you can do it and get away with it? But this character had a conscience that was eating inside of her her entire public and personal life. And she knew there was a reckoning. And there was a reckoning with the very person that had the painting, that the painting was stolen from his bedroom. But the guy found the forger through a private detective and he put on a uh, a false name, false life, and seduced her and violated her. So he crossed these moral absolutes and groomed her. Then they went their separate ways. Then they came back late in the novel. He's in his 80s, close to his death. She is his world-renowned curator, uh, art historian and such, but also a forger, fabricator. And they come to a reckoning. And I won't say what happened, but it dealt with morality. I was interested in that because F for fake. I don't know if you've ever seen F for fake. No. Ladies and gentlemen, by way of introduction, this is a film about trickery and fraud, about lies. You don't talk about Napoleon or Julius Caesar. You're talking about Elmir. Elmir? Elmir? Who is Elmir? That question has yet to be answered with any real precision. Can I kiss you too? Mm-hmm. Anybody wants to eat? In the world of the jet setters among us beautiful people, everybody knows Elmir. But Elmir what? He has about 60 times the same name. The Hori? He's called his name Hori, Uri, Bori, Suri, Kori, Bari, Dori, all the... Oh, Papa. With U R Y, 60 names. His real name was Elmir Ferenc Hoffman. Then 60 personalities, as much lies and as much real. Well, sounds very <laughs> Jesuitic. <laughs> yes, his, his world is a world of make believe. I'm not an actor. Not an actor? Elmir. I'm not an actor. I am not a professional actor. He's a leading actor in this movie. His profession, it's true, is painting, painting fakes. Among all fakers, Elmir is number two. Once I saw a man from Ibiza writing a book on fake who came to see me to Paris. He said, I heard you are the first man who bought a, an Elmir. And that man's name was? Clifford Irving. The important distinction to make when you're talking about the genuine quality of a painting is not so much whether it's a real painting or a fake. It's whether it's a good fake or a bad fake. Orson Welles' last movie. He shot another film called The Other Side of the Wind, but it wasn't released, I think, until 2019, uh, which is another weird story in itself. F for Fake was a documentary, but it was... It was kind of like a fake documentary. <laughs> so 
<laughs> and I, I knew you'd be because you're interested in the fake paintings. I knew that you would appreciate yeah. the story, which yeah. is um, yeah. you know those you know those islands in the in the Mediterranean that are off the coast of Spain. Ibiza is one oh. of them. There's a series of them. So there's one of them is really small. You can get to it uh, via ferry from Barcelona. And anyway, okay. um, Orson Welles lived on this island. You know, he fled America kind of around the same time McCarthyism started. He was a big lefty. There may have been some fears of, you know, I don't want to be around for this. He didn't come back to America until I think 1959, where he shot Touch of Evil for Universal. But anyway, he lived on this island just off the coast of Spain. He lived right down the street from this famous art forger. His name was Elmir de Ore. Elmir de Ore was a, was a Frenchman who could naturally pick up a brush and just paint a Matisse. And people would come by and say, my God, that's the most beautiful Matisse I'd ever seen. And he was like, oh, okay, well, do you want to buy it? And, you know, and he did like Modigliani's and Monet's. And this is all in the, in the 20s. You know, he could do Picasso in the blue period. You know, he, he just had an amazing knack for copying the famous Impressionists. And, you know, Monet and Manet had not been dead for very long, or Van Gogh, for that example. He never he never faked a Van Gogh that I recall, but he did he did a lot of Modigliani's, and he would do sketches and sell those sketches as if, yes, I bought this off of Modigliani, and it's, you know, if you want it, it's $500, which was a lot of money back in 1920, you know, 1915 or something. Well, you know, he finally got caught. And, you know, he went to jail and all this, and... um came out and then he started he started this fantastic business of of you know you can buy a fake modigliani from me or a fake manet uh, you know this is a a certified fake matisse you know it's not a matisse that's hanging in a museum it's what a matisse would paint if matisse were alive mm-hmm. and he made a living off of this and in post retirement orson Got to know this guy. Found out that there was a, a Frenchman by the name of uh, Francois Rickenbacker who had done a. <laughs> Sorry, sounds like Dutch. Yeah. I love gold. Got money from from the BBC to to shoot a documentary about Elmer Dore. Orson went to go see it. He went to the BBC and, and took a look at the footage. Uh, Rickenbacker knew Orson. Rickenbacker never finished the project, but the BBC would sell it to Orson for a fee. And Orson would have 40, 40 or 45 minutes of footage of Elmir de Ore interviews and all of this. The big, the big kicker, Dave, was Elmir de Ore had a biographer. His name was Clifford Irving. Clifford also lived on this island. I don't know if he bought it before or after he met Elmir de Ore. He sat down and took notes and listened to de Ore's story and then wrote a book about Elmir de Ore, most of which has been proven false. Most of which people know is it's all bullshit. Clifford took Elmir de Ore's bullshit and then he put his own bullshit on top and then they they put a book out and it was a bestseller i came in through the kitchen window the hot night the window was open i had to hold up until 11 when the old man took his bath the bathroom was a natural place for an accident to happen i wanted something more than i had i wanted Respect. We have a natural bond, you and I. No, we don't have anything in common. I don't have anything in common with you. I can't let this one get by, Dennis. Bestseller. The subject is an assassin. I removed the liabilities. And I provided some of the assets. Do not move! The author is a cop. Hey, stay back! It's a police emergency! I like you, Dennis. 
Not enough to sacrifice the book for. They need each other more than they can trust each other. Cop. Killer. Two sides of the same coin. Read all about it in my book. Why don't you just be a good cop and leave the killing to me? You like him, don't you? Yeah. And you're going to arrest him. She's the clean part of your life. I'm the dirty part. If they can survive to write the last chapter, they might have a bestseller. Needs an ending. And everybody was happy, and everybody made money, and everybody was smiling. And Orson thought, this story is great. This is a fantastic story. How do I make a documentary about this? And then... Things get even more interesting, like while Orson is is working on this, Clifford sells mm-hmm. a million-dollar contract or signs a million-dollar contract with McGraw-Hill yep. to write a biography of Howard Hughes. And this is in 1972, if I remember correctly. Now, Howard Hughes had not been seen in about 20 years, and he'd famously been holed up at the top of the Desert Inn Hotel. And by this time, I think he was in Nicaragua or some damn place, and he wasn't coming out, and nobody had people had spoken to him on the phone inside the Hughes organization, but he was in his 70s by then. And Clifford apparently said, um, I spoke with Howard Hughes, and I've been in the room with him several times, and I've met him uh, in Nicaragua, and we've written his life story, and this is it. He had like a 600-page book that he typed out. And they cut they cut a check to Howard Hughes, and somehow Clifford cashed that check. And the theory is that he dressed up his wife, and she flew to Switzerland. And uh, the check was made out to H. Hughes, and the the blonde chick had a, a fake ID that said I don't know Henrietta Hughes on it or something. And they managed to deposit that check in a Swiss bank account, wow. and that's that's embezzlement from McGraw Hill. Turns out the book was fake. That Hughes had never met Clifford. Didn't know who the hell he was. Never heard of Elmir de Ore. And this is folding out in real time while Wells is working on this de Ore documentary. Like, well, this is great. Because, you know, this is the guy who mm-hmm. had the War of the Worlds mm-hmm. controversy about fake aliens landing in New Jersey. Signed a final cut contract to go to Hollywood. Made an enormous reputation digging up the yeah. skeletons out of the closet of William Randolph Hearst. I mean, this was this was perfect for Orson. He decided to put this all in a in a documentary, okay, uh, called "F for Fake." And he tells you at the beginning of the documentary, I'm going to send it to you, Dave. He tells you at the beginning of the documentary, he's like, "I'm only going to tell you the truth for about 45 minutes." <laughs> <laughs> it's a fantastic story. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. Clifford and Elmir De Ore and and and. Orson Welles lived on this island together for, you know, 10 years. That's that's great. That's a great Wells story. Wells moved back to Hollywood, I think, in 1967. He still owned that house. It's a great film. It's Now, it's it's not really like a film. It's more like an essay. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of wanders all over the place. Mm-hmm. And you might be 45 minutes into this film. You're like, what the fuck am I watching? I don't, like, I understand it, but I don't know where, where is he going with yeah. this? It's one of those types of movies. Yeah. yeah. And you've just yeah. got to hang in there. Okay. You've got to wait until the credits. Okay. You know. Okay. Good, good. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That's. I like that story. Eichmann, according to Hannah, is telling a story 
Dave is referring to Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil by Hannah Arendt published in 1962. He sees, and it's a replay, and he's, according to her, he uses his cliches, and this story to him is real, when everybody knows that it's not real. And that, that's, that's astounding. I mean, it's, but here, what you're telling me is that there was someone who duped someone, but yet with the other person wrote this fantastical novel or book and knew what they were doing. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a story. It's, it's a craft of storytelling. It's a craft of knowing your audience. It's grifting, yes, but then all writers are grifters to some degree because you want the confidence of the reader. Uh, it reminds me of the man who shot Liberty Valance. I thought it was Jimmy Jimmy Stewart was in that. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart and um, but I'm trying to think Howard Hughes. I think Howard Hawks. No, Howard, Howard was the director. And you're right, yeah. Jimmy Stewart, and then uh, the guy who played in uh, the the big cowboy wannabe. Uh, it was it was Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne. Thank you. And. Uh, Lee Marvin played Liberty Valance. Out of the flame and fury of the frontier, the Old West lives again as only John Ford can recreate it. People with wonderful characters who have become legend in their own time. Of them all, two are the most memorable. Liberty Valance and the man who shot him. That's my stake, Valance. But you heard him, dude. Pick it up. I said you, Liberty. You pick it up. And the man who shot him was justifiably destined to become a hero. Yet, strangely enough, only one of these people could be sure he knew the identity of the man who shot Liberty Valance. Now, you stay out of this, Donovan. He's been hiding behind your gun long enough. You got a choice, dishwasher. Either you get out of town, or tonight you'll be out in that street alone. And John Carradine was in it as well. Yes, oh boy. What an actor's actor. Bunch, bunch of people in it. Woody Strode was in it. The point of that is that at the end of the, you know, when faced with the legend and the facts, print the legend. You all heard him say he had a gun in his hand, didn't you? I didn't say that. That ain't murder, Mr. Marshall. That's a clean-cut case of self-defense. Now get out of my way. Tell the story. But yet, those people who knew the truth, it bothered their conscience as to what happened, what, how it really came about. I mean, there, there was a big social lesson to it. This time, right between the eyes. Have you heard of Tales from the Tour Bus? No. By uh, Mike Judge. Mike Judge rings the bell. He was the genius behind Beavis and Butthead. Butthead. Yes, I say cartoonist. And then he did uh, Office Space, the famous movie Office Space. Yes. From Mike Judge, creator of Beavis and Butthead and co-creator of King of the Hill, comes a movie about people who go to work. (laughs) 
who are part of a team. And remember, next Friday is Hawaiian Shirt Day. Okay, if I could take the building untired. Who respect their boss. We need to talk about your flair. Well, I have 15. 15 pieces on. 15 is the minimum. Brian, for example, has 37 pieces of flair on today. <laughs> and a terrific smile. And need to escape. I don't like my job, and I don't think I'm going to go anymore. One of these days, I, I, I just I just kick this piece of... I'm thinking now it might be more fun to just get fired. And I've always wondered what that would take. Oh, Peter, listen. Uh, it looks like you've been missing quite a bit of work lately. Well, I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. <laughs> That's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. We're going to be getting rid of these people here. Mr. Samir. Okay, thank you. Not going to work here anymore anyway. <laughs> you haven't been showing up and you got to keep your job. Actually, I'm being promoted. Thank you, Bob. This is a... It sucks! They're gonna throw you out on the street so that Bill Lumberg's stock will go up. Ooh. It's completely unfair. Inatech deserves to go down. We're just the guys to do it. Tell me about that virus you're always talking about. The one that could rip off the company for a bunch of money. I'm not going to do anything illegal, Peter. Illegal? Samir, this is America. The worst they're gonna do is they put you in a white-collar minimum security resort for a couple of months. You know they have conjugal visits there? I might be showing them my old face. Oh, oh. They let you have sex with women? They sure do. Okay, I'll do it. Office space. I know you've been getting pretty depressed about your job and everything, and so I just wanted to tell you good things can happen in this world. I mean, look at me. <laughs> From 1999, glorious film, and yeah. he recently put out two seasons of a very strange venture into Texas music history, or I would say the early days of rock and roll and country music in the 50s. Mm. And it was it was called Tales from the Tour Bus. And I'm going to send you some clips on YouTube. Okay, some of them are is the most remarkable stuff that you'd ever heard of in your life. Jerry was out in a nightclub in Memphis. And he was drinking champagne, and he was partying with some people. And he got a phone call, and um, somebody said, you need to come to the phone. It's for you, and it's Elvis. And Jerry goes in, and he takes the phone call. And Elvis was depressed and unhappy, and Jerry said, don't worry about a thing. I'm going to get in my Rolls Royce. I'm coming there. I'll come and get you, and we will go somewhere, and we'll both be better. Jerry's about half loaded, and he said, well, I, I said I'd go on down there. It was about 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. So he pulled up to the gate. Uncle Vernon walked down, he said, Tarp, how you doing, boy? Jerry Lee, you all right? Yeah, yeah, we fine. Good to see you, Vernon. He said, open the gate. We're going to go up and see Elvis a minute. Vernon said, sure, I can't do that. Elvis don't want nobody coming in. It made Jerry mad. He said, I've been knowing that boy since he started. Nothing's changed, for what I'm concerned. And uh, he had a had a gun laying over on the dash, this big old forty-five or something. And so they asked him, said, uh, "What are you doing? Going in there to kill Elvis?" And he said, "That's exactly right." <laughs> <laughs> Just acting crazy and saying crazy stuff. Vernon said, "Jerry, I can't open the gate." Jerry said, "Well, I tell you what, we'll be back in a little while." So he's back the car all across Elvis Presley Boulevard. 
He reeled the motor up and put it in drive. So he just took off and rammed the gate. We got all the way up to the house, and Jerry jumped out of the car, started banging on doors, and every police officer in Shelby County, it looked like they just came out of nowhere. And they were arrested, both of them. The episodes on Waylon Jennings are unbelievable. You know, you're Ooh. talking about a guy who played, who knew Buddy Holly in high school and played bass in his band, and yes. he's the one who lost the coin toss to Richie Valens to get on the plane and died. Yes. You know, and had an enormous career, and you've got meth dealers and Willie Nelson and his marijuana dealers and going into Canada and you know, all kinds of really crazy stuff. I'm going to bring this in because this is going to relate to you. Warren Zevon, were you a Warren Zevon fan? Not, not terribly, no. Okay. I'd, I couldn't name a song. Okay. What happened is that I was reading Gordon Lightfoot's Obit, and then that led to a thread to Bachman Turner Overdrive member Obit. Then there was a link to Warren Zevon, and I read the New York obituary, New York Times obituary of Warren Zevon, and that pulled me back into memory. And I spent the next two nights listening to his music and reading the lyrics as I'm listening to the songs. And I started thinking about Hunter S. Thompson, and I started thinking about what he was writing was that dark side, that funny side, that irreverent side, but yet it's strange. People that 40 years ago I was listening to, I have a better appreciation for their craft than what I did then as a young man. Realize what did I do? Well, that's that's maturity. So, so it comes back to the writing. Shit has hit the fan. 
guns and money. Guns and money. Send lawyers, guns and money. I'm reading about Eichmann, and I'm thinking about Warren Zevon. Would Eichmann have asked for lawyers, guns, and money for his trial? Hunter S. Thompson, I like his work, but I'm also reading going, this guy's a liar. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's, he's funny. I mean, it's, he's hilarious. But but I'm bringing that in because we're talking, our, our subject, you know, is forgeries and fakes and, and, and great writing, good writing, something that, that challenges us as, as, people, as human beings, what it means. I mean, that's what, even if the writing is fake we still derive pleasure from it because the storytelling because the craft of the sentence because we can relate to it some way somehow we laugh we cry we cringe that's what it means to be human and that's what films do as well too right yeah i love i love hunter thompson yeah i i I, (laughs) it's it's harder to find a more original mind than hunter i don't agree with him 100 percent of the time but yeah when i was in when i was in high school i read uh Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. <laughs> yeah. And I think that is like the seminal American journalistic work of the 20th century. That book is yeah. fucking gold. I love it. That's kind of like the birth of gonzo journalism, where he inserts himself into the news that he's covering, mm-hmm. inserts his opinions, which journalism hadn't really explored before. It's just so overt and on your face. And of course, he was an addict of many things. <laughs> But that one scene where he talks about catching a ride to the airport with President Nixon sometime in 1968 when he's running for president, and he hates Nixon even then with all of his with all of his soul and power, he just can't stand Nixon and sees him as this great danger to the country, even before the man is elected. And yet when he gets into a limo and he finds out this guy knows everything about the NFL, there is to know. He knows every quarterback. He knows every every line of scrimmage of every game. This This guy is is dangerous is what he concludes <laughs> because if he knows this much about football, then he probably knows the same about politics. Yes. And if he knows this much about politics, this guy is going to go really far and there's not going to be very much to, to stop him until it's too late. And he wound up being right. Or that was all after the fact. So that was an amazing book. And then I read obviously fear and loathing in Las Vegas, but he, he wrote another one in the, in the eighties that covered his his journalism career from about 1980 to 1992, and it was called Yes, the Rum Diaries. Oh no, I read the Rum Diaries. That was that was the book that Johnny Depp found in his in his belongings after after Hunter Thompson passed away, and they made a film of that. Actually, that's the movie where Johnny Depp met Amber Heard. Yes, uh, she was cast in that role. Yep. That's a really good movie. It's a yes. it's a funny book. It's a funnier movie. <sighs> Puerto Rico. I came down here looking for a story. It's called journalism. Your resume here. Don't look so anxious. I wouldn't have paid for your hotel if I hadn't already hired you. (laughs) But I found the strangest paradise on earth. 
Hey, you made it. I thought you said you had a TV. The guy across the alley has a TV. I have binoculars. It's where your secrets come to dance. Don't notice the wig. And the voodoo <laughs> works its magic. And if the drinking doesn't get you into trouble, how does anybody drink 161 miniatures? Are they not complimentary? The women definitely will. I thought maybe you were a mermaid. I'm from Connecticut. Stay away from her. She's Sanderson's fiance. She sunbathes in the nude. Take it like two maracas. She's a sweet little beauty. I was looking at his boat. We've all been down on her. It's a wonderful experience. <laughs> now all this might sound like some crazed hallucination. But it's all true. I think. This place is a sea of money, Paul. And there's people like me who know how to get it out. Isn't that kind of thing illegal? It's an inappropriate comment. We've nailed this bastard to his own front door. I got a story for you. I'm going after him. Are you out of your mind? I bet. You scream before I do. such thing as 470 proof alcohol what we do is private front seat's gone i've got a brilliant idea try and look normal uh, the great shark great, yes yes uh i i disagree i think that the book the rum diaries is better than the movie uh, oh, you think so? Yeah, because I'm holding the book laughing. <laughs> and I'm going to read that again. Deb was perfectly cast in that. <laughs> yeah, and it was amazing how he basically played Hunter twice, and performances are, are really different, very different. Yeah. And I thought he did a, a brilliant job with that. You brought up Bono. Yes. The last time we spoke. I don't know if, you're, if you've ever read Chuck Klosterman. No, it doesn't ring a bell. Or heard of him. No. Uh, Chuck Klosterman is, you know, he wrote for Premier, Rolling Stone, done a lot of pop stuff. He wrote for Grantland, and he's a huge sports writer. He writes a lot for ESPN, and occasionally he comes on to uh, The Ringer. He writes articles for TheRinger.com and, and is on a couple of their podcasts. He's done some really good stuff. Actually, he, he did like a four-hour podcast where he talked about the Kennedy assassination. He's a very, very well-learned individual. Anyway, he wrote a book, I think, called Sex, Love, and Cocoa Puffs. Correction, that is Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. And he talked about his interview with Bono. He interviewed Bono, I think, for Rolling Stone. And he heard the same thing about Bono, which was uh, Bono is just ultra-passionate about everything. <laughs> just about everything. Oh, and he yeah. met Bono, and Bono was talking about music, and our music is this, and and Ireland is this, and Dublin is this, and he's just so emphatic and so amazingly over the top, charismatic about everything. And so, Klosterman's mm -hmm. trying to be an asshole. And yeah, let's talk about your Maytag washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about what the what type of coping you have around your pool, and whether or not you wanted the Versailles light or the Versailles dark on that stone etching. That's what he was trying to get. And Bono's looking at Klosterman like, the fuck are you talking about? 
<laughs> well, I'm talking about your Maytag, man. What do you do to wash your clothes? And how how jazzed are you that you've got this piece of machine in your house that will never break down and never need a service call? What's that like? Mm-hmm. And Bono's just looking at Klosterman like, you're an asshole. What are you? And he, he apparently he never figured it out, like what Klosterman was after mm-hmm. and what his what his take or his point of view was. But every time I think of Bono, I think of that interview. And I don't know how uh, I don't know where Klosterman is, is going most of the time. Not as much as Hunter, but he's he's pretty good. If you ever get a chance. There there are people right now who are giving us insights to American life. and We got to weed through them. And it's years down the road. I hope we'll find out what their interpretation, what's going on here. I mean, they're, they're writers like Thompson, but they're doing it right now. Chuck Klosterman wrote a book. It came out last year. It's called the nineties. Okay. I, I got it. I got to send it to you. It's, it's a, it's a history of the decade. Okay. It was nothing that you wouldn't remember, but it was the way that he was talking about it. Why is this an issue now? This was not an issue in 1993. And why are the politics like this? Because this was, you know, there was a lot of things he brought up like, yeah, why is the world like this? Because it wasn't like this when I was in college. It wasn't like this when in the 90s. Why is it like this now? And if I can find a, a copy of that, I'll send it to you because you'd be really, his take on it was was really quite good. Because when you say the hellhound on your trail, that goes back to me for Robert Johnson, who allegedly sold his soul to the devil to become one of the greatest musicians in American history that gave the birth not only to the blues, but to rock and roll. That's that legend with him. So when I hear that from you talking about the book, I think of Robert Johnson, which there isn't a lot of recordings by him, or at least the ones that we know of that can be verified. I can tell the we 
That's what Harry Clapton and other people, four Clapton, were picking up on and transforming the blues, rock and roll, gospel to a point. So, I mean, that's even what Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly and Waylon Jennings in his young days, Jerry Lee Lewis, were listening to. They liked this black music, but were scared shitless because white audiences didn't want to hear black music. And the Rolling Stones. And other people are going like, this is great stuff. He brought it over here to made a palatable for us. And really the Rolling Stones. Yeah, the Brits didn't have a problem with it. Yeah, they didn't. And they also, they talked about sin. They did sinning <laughs> in the music. Sang about it while here in America, you don't do this. Uh, back to the books. You know, I just, and so and there's, there's times I tell people we're all friends of fermentation. Beer drinkers, wine drinkers, etc. That's what a book does. A book can sit on the shelf for three months and it's fermented. I'm looking at it. I pick it up, feel it, open it up, smell the pages, set it back down. It's fermented. Then when the time is right, go after it and read it. So that's, I have to mull it over to, to do that. That's why I have a hard time in libraries. I have a hard time in used bookstores. I'm going to walk out of the book. Which one? Which one am I going to? Long story short, sometimes I don't find the book I'm looking for, but I find the writer so I pick up the other book of the writer, and I'm always looking for good writing, good storytelling, way that I can improve upon the language skills of listening, of hearing it, uh, imagine it, and see how people construct sentences, paragraphs. You know, what is it? Not just poetry. Good song. Like Bono talks about songwriting, how he crafts, how he does stuff. It's, I mean, he, he's a boy. Tell you what, get him in a good interviewer. He can really talk about the craft of songwriting, which is a lot like a novelist. He really is good about that. And he's self-deprecating. This is a national emergency. Didn't need a charge. We're in a race against the Nazis. Head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. Build a town, build it fast. We don't let scientists bring their families. We'll never get the best. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world? You're the great improviser, but this... you can't do in your head. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. This is a matter of life and death. 
I can perform this miracle. World War II would be over. Our boys would come home. That's happening, isn't it? The world will remember this day. Our work here will ensure a peace mankind has never seen. Until somebody builds a bigger one. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. which is uh, Robert Oppenheimer, A Life Inside the Center. Oh, yes. Yes. And it is an enormous 700-page study uh, that I'm, I can't wait to get into because I was – spoilers for my listeners, if there are any. I was invited onto another platform to talk about yeah. – uh, the film Oppenheimer, which was supposed to come out in July, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And although I I read a rumor on on a website that said they pushed it to December. Oh, Oscars. Yeah. So that's probably what happened is they had a private screening and decided this is Oscar bait, so we need to push it farther into the year. But so I'm I'm going to read this for that podcast, and uh, we're going to try to record an episode within a week of the of the movie coming out and whether or not i do a an episode on it i don't know i've already luke and i recorded an episode for uh, my next commentary which is coming out i think next month on it's an indian bollywood film that's again spoilers something you talked about i don't know 20 years ago son of the morning star yeah the book on custer evan s connell yes have you read that yes i have a copy of it hardback <laughs> you bet yes so do i it's the, uh <laughs> james mcmurtry no no larry McMurtry, james is his son the singer larry said that's one of the best western books written about the history of the west is the son of morning star really he got it and we know McMurtry was a fictional, good, good fictional writer with that. And even some of his non I think his nonfiction, his essays and such are fantastic. But yes, I've read that. I have that. It's one that I've recommended to other people as well, too. Another book along that Western genre is, but it gets a bit tedious towards the end, as we pointed the north by Teddy Blue. Teddy Blue was one of, as a young boy who was on the cattle drives going up to Kansas and elsewhere. He's looking back on it, I think, in the 1920s and 1930s. It's a memoir. Evan S. Connell. Evan S. Connell, a good writer. Uh, I don't know if he's still around or not. McMurtry, he died a couple of years ago. Your first book, uh, I'm going to go back to the beachy France. The Lutherans in southern France had a strong underground, but it was all ad hoc. And some of the stories I've read is that there would be a gathering point for 
the refugees, they'd feed them and clothe them, and then they would send them out to the outlying farms. And that farmer would know another farmer who would know another farmer. And they purposely didn't keep a message chain going. And quite often, these people literally walked into Switzerland. And then there was a French underground, a French resistance that fought amongst themselves. And also, they think that some of the, the Vichy officials looked the other way because of family or religious ties that their conscience got the best of them. So at times, they would look the other way while the refugees are going the opposite direction, and they'd play stupid, uh, kind of like that Hogan's Heroes, uh, I don't know, I don't know, <laughs> type thing. And it was later in the war that some of the stories I heard is when the Germans knew they were getting the snot knocked out of them by the, the Allies, that they started getting vicious and going after everybody. That was, I mean, it was, it was like the criminals last, uh, just like, I'm going to hell and you're going with me and I'm going to take, you know, it's that type of attitude with that. And that's when it came really dangerous for them. Danger in Prague that you sent me and that I read that very question about what does it mean to be a Jew? Is it a, because one grandparent, two grandparents, dad, mom, no, it's that legal impasse that the Germans had, which was terrible, but yet it also saved some lives as well, too. They have treated everybody uh, outside of being in a German uniform as a second-class citizen. I think we're going to learn what's going on in Ukraine. My sense is that, because, you know, Ukraine was always just beat the shit out of, you know, by the French, and by the Germans, by the Soviets. But your VC thing, yeah, that sounds really good at Dave is discussing a book I recommended called Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed, The Village of Lee Chambon and the Good That Happened There by Philip Halley. When you were talking about that, I'm going, okay, I've heard these stories, I've heard these stories here, and I've read them in the, the accounts, and these are people who have, who have survived. The book that I'm reading, The Radiant Girls, which I don't want to get into tonight because I'm, I'm only a third in the way of the book, fantastic book. I had to look when it was written, when the interviews were done. And it's like, shoot, these sto the thing is that these oral traditions and photographs, the families of the victims preserved the lives of the radium girls. Welcome to American Radium. You are paid one cent per dial. Your work suffers, Miss Cavallo. The eight looks like a fat toddler. This month's top painter, Josephine Cavallo. Will you help me practice my feeling spaces? I'm studying. I have to be ready to be discovered and go to Hollywood. I want to find a tomb like Tut's, and I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> Joe, will you be ready in five minutes? Joe? Don't come in, please. Joe? I don't know what's wrong with her. I'm dizzy. <laughs> My joints ache. I lost a tooth and two others are loose. Do you know what's wrong with me? Absolutely nothing. You're healthy as a horse. Where do you work? American Radium. We're dial painters. We believe that exposure to radium can cause devastating tissue damage. <laughs> radium is good for you. Everyone knows that. What does this mean for us? We take American Radium down. There's a doctor that can test if your bones are radioactive. Bessie, you sound crazy. 
I'm not losing my job over this. I'm scared. I'm not going back in there. I'm looking for Bessie and Josephine Lavallo. They did a study years ago. They own it. Own research. That's absurd. It's like owning gravity. American radium is denying the harmful effects of radium. All they have to do is run out the clock. They could drag this out for years. You don't have years. You'll never win. I'm doing it. No matter what. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Everyone put down your brushes. Radium is poison. Bessie, you're trespassing. I won't abandon you. They're trying to silence you. They must be stopped. Do you really think you can beat American Radium? I am going to make American Radium pay for what they've done. Get your, get your American It says, I mean, this is, book was maybe written 80 years later, but they're, they're there. You'd see the pictures and you know, they're going through with that. I'm going, that's really something. And I draw that parallel back to World War II that people preserve the family histories of, of doing it. And that's something very unique that in spite of the death, in spite of the horrific conditions, people still preserve their heritage or history. That's absolutely true. And, and you know, without that, we wouldn't have those stories um, about, about that or the son of the morning star. And there's a narrative of, of the battle of the little bighorn that was ignored for Yes. Uh, a lot of years. And I know you showed me pictures of when you went, which was, I suppose, sometime in the 90s. Yeah. And yeah. I've been there twice. You've been there twice. Yeah. When was the second time you went? Before we moved to Texas. And then after? One year exactly. Before, even before that, yeah. I was there as a teenager. And then Barb, the girls, and I, one year before we moved to Texas in 1998. And we met people from Texas who were rangers there that were from Texas at, on summer internships or jobs. And lo and behold, a year later, we're in Texas meeting you and everybody else. Now, I did listen to, I remember, I was either as a teenager or as just with the year before, one of the rangers told us that the Indians got so fed up with the whites asking what happened, they would tell a white guy just whatever they wanted to hear. And if they lied, they lied. But they were tired of being asked, and they said if we told the truth, which we did, they wouldn't listen to us. Yeah. That's part of it. But there is a truth there that's going to – and also I don't know if it's uh, Red Cloud or City Bull. There is – his generation is continuing, but they're sworn to secrecy because they don't want the white people to know who the offspring of one of those two chiefs are. Huh. It's – it is a code of honor, code of ethics. It's by Hitler's children. You know, we don't need to know who they are. Right. Dave is referring to Alois Hitler, the brother of Adolf Hitler. Alois fled Germany before the Second World War and moved to America where he had two children. Both children decided not to have any offspring and end the Hitler genealogical line to prevent the recurrence of fascism or the emergence of a cult of personality. What, what value is knowing that who they are.
before I picked up the Radium Girls, I was reading, rereading Fast Food Nation. He spends the first 40 to 50 pages on Walt Disney and the creation of that and McDonald's and ties the two together. Okay, and I said I'm rereading it, but I get bored because I'm learning more than I want to know about Disney and about McDonald's. But what I was had forgotten was how much of a businessman both Ray Kroc and Walt Disney were and how self-serving narcissistic they were in creating these empires. They were successful. Were they icons? Yeah, but... And I got to hand it to, to Disney. And then towards the latter part of their lives, or towards the end, they had a marriage of what business relationships so to help preserve their legacies. But I just, I'm thinking, would I have enjoyed having dinner with one of the two? I would say probably not. Ray Kroc, uh, everything I understand, and not just watching The Founder, where Michael Keaton played Ray Kroc. I know what you're thinking. How the heck does a 52-year-old, over-the-hill, milkshake machine salesman build a fast food empire with 1,600 restaurants and an annual revenue of $700 million? One word. Persistence. Prince Castle Sales. Hi, Jim. Ray, how's it going down there? Good. Swell. A lot of interest. We got an order. Six mixers. To anyone in particular? McDonald's. Care for a little tour? We wanted something different, and that's when my brother here comes up with one of his brilliant ideas. Orders ready in 30 seconds, not 30 minutes. Unique, original, there's nothing like this. It's revolutionary? It's exactly what it is. It's revolutionary. What is that? The Golden Arches. It's a way to make the place stand out. Huh. There should be McDonald's everywhere. Franchise the damn thing. Mr. Crock. Franchise. 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 McDonald's can be the new American church. And it ain't just open on Sundays, boys. I am flesh and I am bone. Rise up, ting, ting, like glitter and gold. How can we be almost out of capital? Did you mortgage our home? Yeah, we could lose everything. I want to renegotiate my lousy deal. I can't. Can't or won't? Ray. What? No. Oh, damn it. What you ought to be doing is owning the land upon which that burger is cooked. You're not in the burger business. You're in the real estate business. Franchise Realty Corporation. It's its own separate company, which puts it outside your purview. There's a wolf in the hen house. We let him in. When's enough going to be enough for you? Probably never. You are to stop this instant. I am through taking orders from you. You have a contract. Contracts are like hearts. They're made to be broken. Business is war. It's dog eat dog, rat eat rat. I want to take the future. I want to win. The brothers are your business partners. Make it go away. I don't care what it takes. That glorious name, McDonald's. I had to have it. You don't have it. You sure about that? rather surprising turn which i really enjoyed he doesn't seem to interest me at all he was a hard worker and luckily his his widow second wife left 
their almost their entire fortune to NPR, which I greatly appreciate. <laughs> I don't think yeah. that he he destroyed consumerism or capitalism or anything of that nature. I think McDonald's did that all, all by itself by having just a horrible product, and of course that led to rebranding and health effects and whatever. But you know, you don't. There's plenty of people that are copying that formula and doing better things yeah. with it yeah. for sure. Yeah. Walt Disney is a is close to a genius. I mean, just yeah. just so close to a genius. The man had nothing. Mm-hmm. He had nothing but a, a stencil and a pen and free form and talent. And he had 30 people working on Snow White around the clock for years, mortgaged his house, mortgaged the studio, borrowed every dime from every bank in California, just put it all on the line. It was like writing it all on Black 21, and it fucking hit. And Snow White was the third largest moneymaker in Hollywood history of all time for about 10 years. It was crazy how much money that that film came in and stayed in theaters for, for even longer. It was like Gone with the Wind, you know, that stayed in theaters for like 30 years or something like that. Just the the fact that he was able to move from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 1939, pay off all of his debt, build an animation studio, and, you know, move it out of his garage and put it into a professional place in Burbank uh, and build that from scratch, and then proceed to to put a production line of animation films, not cartoons, not one reels, but a production line of animated movies that came out on reliable schedules for the next 40 years, you know, and, and, and it would take him dying for that to break down and fall apart. You know, it's, it was just really, really impressive how he did that. And to found, I mean, in 1939, he, he didn't know what was going to happen to the rest of his life. And within 15 years, he's founding um, the largest theme park in the world. Yeah. Uh, which becomes a brand name, and now there's there's two in China, there's two in the United States, there's one in Europe, and I understand that the mouse has bought an enormous amount of property uh, just south of Fort Worth. Oh, and and uh, that is yeah, Buena Vista Land Company, and that is the next place because both parks in California and Florida have maxed out in attendance. And they have to do something. They have to bring the attendance at the other two parks down or people are going to stop going. That is okay. So that's the idea is they're going to put it outside DFW, which I have to tell you, I don't, you know, not that, not that I, I necessarily want all the extra traffic, but it would have been much wiser to put that say North of Katy. Okay. Or Columbus. Okay. Or you know somewhere you know south of Attics, like just somewhere what northwest of Houston, I think would have been the smarter move. But you know who am I? They don't, they don't ask me these things. How about Marfa, Texas? Put it out there. Marfa in the middle of the desert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, then you wouldn't have to pay for fireworks because you'd have the Marfa lights every night. That's not. That's not I a just... bad idea. I'm just thinking it's just less congested. <laughs> Way less congested. And you'd have those Canadian yeah. snowbirds out there for sure. I've never been to Marfa, <laughs> but I need to go. Uh, everyone who's been t- says the same thing, which is you have to go. 
Yeah, I, I've only looked at pictures of Marfa. I think before I'm too old to travel, I need to go there. Did I get you off task earlier? No. Nope. Shut it off at Vichy. Okay, okay. I just, just didn't want to uh, do that. The thing about the Sun of the Morning Star, when I was at Little Bighorn, I don't know if you saw the film version of Sun of the Morning Star with Gary Cole as General Custer. If I did, it was a TV movie. It was, yeah. it was in two parts. Yeah, I probably did, but I don't remember it. I probably, I remember, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was really good. And it, it did something that I don't think I've seen in, in really any other Western, which is unironically or really unassumingly having the natives part of the story. Mm-hmm. You have to because there's two sides. You have to. And so when I when I went to Little Bighorn, I went with a completely open mind with what I was going to discover there, knowing fully well that this was federal land that was owned by the U.S. government. Uh, there is a grave there. There is a cemetery there owned by the U.S. military. And there are fallen soldiers there, not just in Custer's time, but from all World Wars, Spanish-American War, World War One, World War Two, and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And wanted to be respectful of, of all of that. And when I went on the tour, uh, I went with uh, a, a Cheyenne guide. And he was paired off with a park ranger. Uh, I thought, this looks like a train wreck. And it was not a train wreck. It went right down the line. And I really, really appreciated the camaraderie between those two Americans uh, conveying the story. And there was so much about that story that I did not know. And I think the series uh, failed to show, uh, which I, I'm hoping to, to read the book, The Sun of the Morning Star, and get more of. But you know, the United States government signed a treaty with those tribes to stay out of that area. And they broke that treaty. And they sent three military attachments into that area, round up and eradicate those tribes. And this is, this is not contested. This is actual fact. There's no way for anyone, government, uh, right-wing or otherwise, to say this is not true. It is absolutely true. The government signed that treaty, broke that treaty, and the entire plan from Custer and Benteen all down was to eradicate every living Indian in that quadrant. And they walked into, it wasn't a trap. There was no trap sprung. Custer ex- extended himself. And because of his personality, and he got his ass beat. And it is very hard. It is very hard as a modern-day white American to look back at that and say, well, <laughs> how, can you, how can you wish for a different result? Custer got what he deserved. And quite frankly, so did the U.S. military. Yeah. I wish that the natives would have pulled off a coup. I really do wish that they could have done something that would have permanently preserved that part of the country for them forever. I, I think our nation would be better because of it. That was the beginning of the end of the Indian nation, and that war didn't really end until Wounded Knee, which was a terrible, terrible massacre. That's, Horrible. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to have to wrap this up, but I'm going to send you a book you should look at online called uh, The Dull Knives of Pine Ridge. And that's all, folks. Thanks for listening to me and Dave Ramble on the Super 70 Podcast. You can find me, my books, and my blog at www.thatdillandavis.com. Drop me a line at thatdillandavis at gmail.com. 
find me on Instagram or use your powers of telepathy. I'm Dylan Davis, and we'll meet you next time in New Zealand. such a way in where I felt like he would let us in on his personal anxieties. Really? Or, it wasn't that? Or his, or his fatigue. He, he genuinely seemed infatigable until the very end, um, which is kind of remarkable. He, he was a great leader in that way. Sort of boundless energy. Um, you know, up against so many challenges, and in the face of those challenges, a kind of, well, okay, like, this is what it is, and, and kind of, all right, well, we're going to do this now. Practical, pragmatic, but he, I think he also really believed in his team. I think he never lost sight of the small picture. 
it's really easy to look at the big picture and think, fuck, what, have I, what, have, what am I doing? It's unwieldy, it's massive, there are all these moving parts and I'm at the helm of it all. And there are these people in Hollywood who are banking on this thing working. Right. There's all of that. But I think in the face of those concerns and anxieties, which could be crippling, he came to work every day and focused on this, on us and what he does best and what he loves most. And I think that that kept the, the larger sort of existential fears of, of how the whole thing could come crumbling down and kind of put it into the work. That's what I saw. One of the great qualities a director, I think, can have is the ability to listen and that anyone's idea is worth it, that there's, everyone has the possibility to contribute, and it's worth listening to everybody. And Peter was very much that kind of director, just as willing to listen to you know, the guy who just made him some tea about some shot or whatever it was, as he would be his DP or his actors. And it creates a sense in your workforce um, and your crew of them being a part of it, being included, it being an all-inclusive creative experience. And that is very much what it felt like, and that extended from him.